What does it mean for an album to change your life? That's the question we asked some of our favorite writers last year in a series of essays in our ongoing Turning the Tables project. In that project, we set out to challenge assumptions about what matters in music and what makes music great by centering the voices and stories of women and non-binary artists and writers. Artists like PJ Harvey, whose song This Is Love changed the life of one of our guests today. I'm so excited for this conversation because it's all about how, as music fans and critics, we internalize those hierarchies and we make assumptions about what kind of music is good or important in response to what other experts, historically often men, think. But what if you love an album that other people think is trash? What if you're attracted to music that others call silly or soft? And what changes if you say, screw it, this matters to me anyway? I'm Marissa LaRusso, I'm an associate editor for NPR Music and an editor for our Turning the Tables project, and I edited the essay series about life-changing albums. You can read all those essays and everything else we've published as part of Turning the Tables at npr.org slash turningthetables. Every Wednesday in March, we're talking about those life-changing albums with writers from the series. I'm joined today by two of those writers and two of my personal favorite current music critics, First, we have Laura Snapes, who is The Guardian's deputy music editor. Hi, Laura. Hi. And also joining us is Maria Sherman, writer, critic, and author of the book Larger Than Life, A History of Boy Bands from NKOTB to BTS. Welcome, Maria. Hello, hello. I'm so excited to talk to both of you today. You both wrote such wonderful essays for the series. And one thing that I really loved about both of them is that they both describe how it feels to develop your taste as a critic and how that process often happens in contrast to something else, like what other people think or what you think you're supposed to like, stuff like that. But for both of you, you wrote about records that you loved the moment you heard them. So Laura, let's start with you. You wrote about PJ Harvey's Uh Uh-Huh Her, and you were a huge fan of hers before this record came out, right? Tell me about your love for PJ Harvey. I was. Um, I had discovered her completely by accident. I think we got cable and music TV channels when I was about 10 or 11. And my favorite hobby was to sit and cycle through all 15 or however many of them are just in a row, just round and round and round looking for my favorite things. And when I was 12, that was like Avril Lavigne, Spice Girls solo projects. But because of the order that they went in, it was like MTV, MTV hits, which had pop on it, MTV bass, which had R&B and hip hop. I don't know if it's the same in America. And then MTV2. And MTV2 mm-hmm. wasn't really a world I was aware of at that time, but it was through ending up on that channel that I saw the video to This Is Love. It's just a white room, PJ Harvey in a white suit with like a blazer and nothing underneath it, huge slash of red lipstick, incredible black hair, playing guitar, and she just looks so sexy and feral and in command. It captivated me so much at 12. I had just never seen anything like it. And I desperately wanted to know who she was and what she was about and where I could hear more of this. What an iconic introduction to an artist that would go on to be like a really important artist for you. In your essay, also, you wrote about the first time that you heard the record Uh Uh-huh Her and how this was the moment when your fandom for her and her new music was converging at the same time for the first time. Can you read a little bit from your essay? Sure. 
It's a potent moment when your teenage timeline overlaps with the one being charted by an artist building a beloved legacy. In 2004, Harvey's sixth album, Aha Her, became her first release that I experienced as a fan. No longer playing catch-up, I now stood the same chance as anyone else to cultivate my expertise and make this album mine. I would have loved anything she released, giddy to finally meet her in real time. But as I would learn, Harvey doesn't do passive pleasures. She had scrawled a photo inside the liner notes of the album with the comment, to PJH? I didn't understand how anything could be to PJH. I love that. And tell me about how it felt to hear that record for the first time. Like, what stood out to you about it musically? I had um, Stories from the City, Stories from the Sea by this time, which I think mm-hmm. I probably bought from the supermarket on a shopping trip with my mom. Um, <laughs> and that is a much more sort of glossy record. You know, the leap from something like, I guess, Avril Lavigne to Stories from the City is not enormous, whereas Aha Her was grotty and feral. It has these really like spooky alien folk kind of sounding parts and it It has a really enormous amount of range. I would say probably the biggest range of every PJ Harvey album. I can say now, I didn't know that at the time. (laughs) And I loved how rude it was. Like I probably hadn't heard much music like that before. I mean, by the time Aha Her came out, I would have been listening to like Franz Ferdinand and Block Party and things like that. But even that all seemed a lot more sort of tidy and stylized than what she was doing on this record. Yeah. Did you feel like shocked? Did you feel like scared? Like what were the feelings that it gave you? I definitely wasn't scared. I was still definitely in that sort of teenage mindset where it's like, I worship this woman and I will accept Mm -hmm. anything that she gives me. Mm -hmm. But I really loved how messy it was because the whole look of the stories from the city era had been really slick as well. Like the artwork is her going around New York. She's wearing a nice wrap dress. She's got stylish sunglasses and a really chic hairdo. But the photograph on the cover of Aha Her is like a flashed out Polaroid. She is grimacing. It's a selfie, I think. But she you can see her almost recoiling from her own lens. She's got quite a bad haircut. And I think actually one of the songs <laughs> is about her receiving a bad haircut and about how furious she is at it, which is definitely something I could relate to having given myself most of my own bad haircuts at that time. <laughs> The whole thing about pop is people have to get bigger and bigger and bigger because if they get smaller, they have failed. And so to see an artist not capitalize on their big glossy pop moment with another big glossy moment was like, oh, what's happening here? Can you tell me about a song in particular that you loved from the record when you first heard it? The first single was The Letter, and I remember being very excited when that video came into circulation on MTV2. It wasn't a glossy look at all. It was like home camera footage, I guess probably made on a camcorder because I think this is still pre-camera phone era, but like it's her dancing around her hotel room in her underpants, bits of live footage, bits of her just like very candid. As much as you totally fell for this record, critical reception was not as positive, right? I got NME every week at this point, and that was like my main critical Bible, and they gave it a really scathing review. You know, at the time, I just thought like, oh God, like the gods who are handing down the tablets of judgment from on high, they don't like this. (laughs) Now I can read it and see that what they were saying was pretty sexist. And I was thinking Mm. earlier, actually, I wonder how much age had to do with it as well, because around like 94, 95, when PJ Harvey is in what she described as her Barbara Cartland on acid phase, like wearing a hot pink catsuit at Glastonbury with like blue eyeshadow up to her eyebrows, 
people loved that. She was on the cover of NME showing her armpit hair and all of those sort of like wild facets to her seemed to be valued. But then this album comes out in her early 30s and she was written about almost in a way that it was embarrassing. And it struck me earlier, like maybe it's an age thing that they thought, you know, you shouldn't be doing this past a certain age. Her moment of youthful experimental beauty was over and now she needs to be some kind of other adult woman. I definitely want to jump in more to all of everything you just said, but I also want to bring Maria into the conversation too, because this reminds me of something that you wrote about in your essay, where you were also facing some kind of conflicted opinions about the record you wrote about, except here, the critic that you were disagreeing with was in some ways yourself. Um, So you wrote about the self-titled album from Tiger Trap, who introduced you to loving twee music. So before we get into all of those feelings, could you give us like a brief refresher on twee as a genre, just for some background? It's basically the only subject I feel like I can be an authority on, which maybe speaks to how I've internalized some of the criticism of, of twee to be sort of self-limiting in that. But We're definitely going to unpack that, Maria. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> how much time do you have? Um, so the word twee itself is a British word. It means cute, quaint, precious. It's one of the, those delicious words that sounds exactly like what it means. Mm-hmm. And I think it's sort of crucial to have the definition because you can sort of see immediately how it lends itself to being something used to be derogatory. Something is either, it can be too cutesy as opposed to just Mm -hmm. cute. And there's sort of like an inherent limitation in that. But the music comes from the 80s in the UK. A lot of people like to use the 1986 cassette comp from the NME C86 as sort of the touchstone, the the beginning of it all, uh, because it features Mm -hmm. artists like the Pastels and Close Lobsters. UK guitar pop bands, very jangly, men and women harmonizing with one another. And then in the US, we see it born in the Pacific Northwest with K Records from Calvin Johnson and Beat Happening. Uh, It's the label that puts out Tiger Trap's first album. And I think what's also sort of important about this musical history is that it comes from punk, which is sort of sometimes ahistoricized when we talk about Tweet because it is sort of softer sounding than... I don't know, capital P punk. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it's born from like a DIY community ethos founded in anti-capitalist ideas, but also sort of challenges traditional images of punk in that it's not aggressive or violent or, or macho. In fact, it sort of sees being gentle and tender as its own form of progressive ideology, which when I first heard it, I thought of as wimpy <laughs> and, and over time realized, oh, wait, no, that's actually a really incredible way of approaching the world. And and it sort of opened my eyes. I think it's almost unfortunate that I published this essay so early in the year last year, because recently there's been a TikTok micro trend calling for the return of Twee. It's more specific to late 2000s, early 2010s fashion. So Peter Pan collars, cardigans, bright tights, everything Taylor Swift wore in the red album cycle. <laughs> Less so about twee music. Oh, and Zoe Deschanel. My God, how could I forget her? Of course. <laughs> As the sort of unfortunate image of the manic pixie dream girl. And, and then there actually have been some TikTok music critics, primarily women, who have sort of taken it upon themselves to define that as a twee fashion revival and not twee music revival. And uh, it's really cool to see a bunch of teenage girls talk about Tiger Trap on social media, and that's been happening recently. Let's listen to a little bit of Tiger Trap. What's a great song from this record you recommend? We gotta play the hit. Let's do Super Crush.
Yeah, Maria, I feel like your essay, I don't want to say kicked off the Twee revival, but I certainly think maybe it's part of it. And I'm glad that you brought up the difference between capital P punk and Twee, because you, at the time you first heard Tiger Trap, or right before you heard this record, you were really into punk, right? And you really didn't like Twee, didn't like the aesthetics of it. Tell me about like that moment for you. Yeah, I assumed Twee was completely synonymous, synonymous, excuse me, with whimsy. And I had a disdain for the word whimsy. If you knew me from age 18 to 22, I have probably had a drunken conversation with you about how much I hate this idea, <laughs> which is also one that I didn't really have any sort of sophisticated ideas about. It was simply like, what is uncool is sort of whimsical, fantastical, musical theater, things that are like, can be described as feminine or frivolous, which in, in the essay I talk about sort of using them as, as again, synonyms for each other. Mm -hmm. And I did. And I think a lot of it was based on a real obsession with appearing cool <laughs> and being cool <laughs> and understanding cool as something that had been handed down to me from male critics. It's the black leather jacket, chain smoking, punk rock of it all. Yeah, it took some time to unpack some of those ideas. And so, I you know, Tweet just seemed uncool. So why would I bother? Totally. I want to ask, did you identify as a feminist during this time or were you thinking about did you have thoughts about like, oh, I'm I'm being told by men what is cool? Or was that kind of just like received wisdom and you just were existing in this world where men were telling you what was cool and that was kind of what you had to do to be cool? Yeah, I think I certainly espoused very early, <laughs> poorly formed feminist ideas. I don't think I used the word feminist and that wouldn't have happened until college, which is, I feel deep shame <laughs> about revealing, but... It was a different time, I guess. I was in a military environment. There wasn't, it didn't seem like there were many opportunities for me to engage with things that probably would have opened my eyes a little bit. No, no shame here. I think that that's a lot of people's story and everyone has their own journey to feminism. And yours actually involved Tiger Trap. So tell me about the first time you heard that record. I owe so much to Tiger Trap and Rose Melberg, the front person of Tiger Trap and the sort of mastermind behind it so much because it was one of the few times in my life where I've heard an album and I was like, oh, this is for me. I understand mm. this deeply. It's vibrating within me. This is going to be a part of my identity, which I think is such a kind of fun way to be, you know, a music listener and enthusiast is when you have that sort of immediate recognition of like, oh, no, this cuts deep. This is going to be very personal. And actually listening to it, I was just sort of shocked by how punk it sounded. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, it's 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 heavy with the propulsive drums or like kick ass riffs. It didn't sound amateurish, but I imagine, you know, you could probably play it with a few chords as long as, you know, you had... Rose Melberg's incredible understanding of, of hooks. Yeah, I, I loved it immediately. Laura, I want to ask, were you a Twee fan? Were you familiar with this scene at all as a music listener? I don't think I was aware of the C86 scene until maybe I was like in my early 20s, but I disdained Twee. And I definitely, <laughs> as much as I had like a nascent form of feminism that I was very violently active about, I think I also had an enormous amount of internalized misogyny about like what I saw as like softness and femininity. I think that I was a huge fan of like PJ Harvey and also Annie DeFranco. Annie DeFranco shaved her head and I desperately wanted to, but I was told I'd be expelled from school. So instead I settled <gasps> for cutting off my eyelashes. Twee and like pizza pan collars, I had a real problem with for a long time. And that is also embarrassing to admit because it's baseless and silly. But I had, as much as I knew that I did not accept the verdict of the men from NME saying they didn't like that PJ Harvey album, I definitely still had internalized a lot of their ideas about what made like a cool or acceptable woman. 
That's fascinating to me because I was completely intimidated by PJ Harvey. So I think there was a reason that Twee sort of became the thing that sort of opened my eyes into feminism and music criticism and, and all that sort of stuff. I couldn't mess with the feral PJ Harvey. It was too, it was too much. It was too cool. <laughs> I'm so excited to talk more about this with both of you. But first, we have to take a short break. It's All Songs Considered from NPR Music. This message comes from our 2022 lead sponsor of NPR Music, State Farm. To celebrate their surprisingly great rates, State Farm invites you to discover the surprisingly great genre, Boston hip-hop. It's not just your everyday hip-hop with a thick Boston accent. Boston hip-hop is known for its gritty beat, DIY stages, and underground music scene. It actually got its start at Harvard and MIT's radio stations. This beat's got brains and beauty. Make sure to check out Boston hip-hop, then check out State Farm's surprisingly great rates. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. So before the break, we were talking about the different responses that you both had to hearing Twee for the first time. Something that I loved from your essay, Maria, is that you write about having this kind of light bulb moment with the album where it was like you thought you were supposed to hate certain sounds or, you know, certain aesthetics. You weren't supposed to like them. And instead you were like, oh, this is for me. This record resonates so hard. Even write in your essay about having this like defensiveness about the band where you're like, oh, well, if people don't like them, then they obviously just don't get it or they weren't listening closely enough. And I love that, Laura, that was your response. You were like, I don't really get this. This doesn't seem very feminist. Talk more about that. You know, it's it's funny. Um, I think the defensiveness to me kind of strikes me as like male rock music fan behavior. I did develop that. And a lot of it, I think, is tethered to the fact that when I discovered Tiger Trap and Twee and, and Indie Pop more broadly, uh, I loved it so deeply. It did feel like it was some form of identity formation. And if you were to disregard this music in any way or criticize it, it somehow it was like a disconnect in me and the world mm -hmm. and... Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, you know, was very insecure and, and didn't want to face that sort of criticism. And, you know, that's also, I imagine, a key tenant of, you know, music fandom is, is it if something is so precious to you and, and people can't possibly see how precious it is to you, you become defensive over it. Totally. I had like a really similar thing. Around this time, PJ Harvey gave a concert from a London venue called the Union Chapel, which was filmed and put out on the BBC. And I loved that she was wearing like knee-high rainbow socks. And I also loved knee-high rainbow socks. And my mum came in <laughs> while I was watching it. And she was just like, what is this noise? I mean, I could make a catalogue of all the disparaging things my mum said about my teenage music taste. <laughs> but it's the sort of comment that just makes you double down. And you're like, no, I love this even more now. And you're going to hear it even more often out of my bedroom. I think that is a really typical teenage response, especially. But although I knew that I did disagreed with like the men from NME saying that this album was bad. I think I also felt betrayed because at that point I had spent a few years probably internalizing their values. And I was like, but I've, I've played your game. I'm in your club. And now you're saying I'm wrong. Yeah, this makes me think like, I feel like when I was a teenager, when I loved something and I was told by some authority that it was noise or it was bad, it's like either you're like, oh yeah, I'm wrong. I don't know what I'm talking about. Or you have some kind of backbone or like teenage petulance and you're like, no, you're wrong. And I know what I like. And I feel like that second response is like how you guys developed as critics. It's like the seed of the critic brain in you sprouting and thinking like, no, the thing that I love actually is great for the reasons that I love it. And if you don't get it, then your system is wrong. Totally. Laura, I had a similar relationship with, with you and NME. Uh, I had that with like, Our Band Could Be Your Life, which is a great book mm -hmm. and it taught me a lot, but I was definitely like, this is the text. I'm mm. 18 in New York City. I'm going to learn about all these indie bands from the 80s because this is what I have been told is cool. And I'm going to form all these opinions about 
pavement uh, <laughs> that aren't my own, but I'm going to stick by them and and pretend that they're interesting. And uh, Tiger Trap, the moment I like heard this album was very formative in, in recognizing that like, oh, I can have my own opinions. They are valid. And because they are my own, they're interesting. They haven't just been regurgitated by critics I do respect and still love, but these are my own. When you had that realization, did you start to think back to other things and think, oh, maybe I actually don't like that pavement record, or maybe I do like this thing that some famous text said is not good? I think I started to recognize that it was weird that I was like going to see Mission of Burma with middle-aged men when I was a teenager, and that was my first foray into music criticism. (laughs) It was great, and I met a lot of interesting people, and I do appreciate that, but it was sort of like, I don't know. Maybe I can participate in music that is happening in my timeline. I also don't think I would have discovered Tiger Trap if I didn't join my college radio station. And there were a mm-hmm. lot of pieces that came together that allowed me to think for myself, which is a little bit interesting because I always wanted to be a music journalist, but that was before I had my own opinions about music. I guess I didn't recognize <laughs> that part of it is like a sense of autonomy and and your own observations and experiences. But Tiger Trap was certainly formative in, in me recognizing that. Yeah, I mean, I also think if you are a young person who aspires to love music publicly as a writer or a critic or in some way, and you don't have role models of people who look like you or reflect your taste or reflect your experience, it's really easy to think like, oh, yeah, that's the job where you have a certain kind of opinion and it doesn't have to be one that comes from your experience or perspective at all. It wasn't until college that all of my music writer heroes were men uh, up until that point, until someone actually pointed it out to me. I had a couple experiences like that. Like I went to a record fair and somebody was like, why are you the only woman in this room? And it was, it all sort of happened at once. Thank God I discovered Tiger Trap. Laura, did you have any kind of similar experience thinking about who your musical idols or critics or writers were? I wasn't allowed on the internet very much until I was like 17. I would go on it at school Mm -hmm. a little bit. And so the only music critics I knew were the ones who were in NME, who were mostly men. There was a couple of women. I think I was good at knowing what I liked, but within very narrow boundaries. So I remember when somebody told me to listen to Slanted and Enchanted, speaking of pavement, I bought it. And I was like, this is so boring. Why would I listen to this? I hate this record. Um, You know, and so I was able to sort of make my own mind up, but only within really narrow bounds. Like all of the pop music I had listened to when I was like 12, 13, I loved like R&B and Destiny's Child and really pure pop. I had just decided it was abject once I got into NME, uh, Mm. style indie, that sort of era. And I guess if there was one thing that really brought me back to it, it's another band that I've liked probably about the same amount of time as I've liked PJ Harvey, who I almost could have written about for this series, which is Tegan and Sarah, who I feel like have had such an interesting journey. Like they were like a crunchy indie pop duo uh, when I was first discovering them around, like If It Was You and then So Jealous. And then they have that crossover with the White Stripes. So they're very much in that world. But then when they made their pop album Heartthrob in the early 2010s it's a pure pop record and I listened to it because I was a big fan and I was like oh I think I've been denying myself a lot because I subscribe to all of these values. That's a great point and reminds me of a question I wanted to ask you Maria and and also you Laura which is that Maria in your essay you write about thinking about the complicated feelings of loving Twee and the fact that it is like so sweet and quaint and maybe like leans into these stereotypes 
of femininity, of girlishness. And you're kind of wondering, like, wait, is it infantilizing to love this? Is it regressive in some way? What would it mean to let myself like that anyway? Tell me about those feelings. I recognize now that even asking the question, is this regressive or self-infantilizing to love Twee, I'm sort of limiting myself. And it's certainly language that has been passed down to me either environmentally or just good old internalized misogyny. It almost strikes me as uh, as maybe that's the sort of juvenile take. I was watching a, a Bravo show the other night and there was a 20-year-old character who was yelling at another 20-year-old character. I guess it's a reality show. They're real people uh, about, being, <laughs> about being immature. And she was just so like, we're the same age, but I'm more mature than you. And I and I was just thinking, this is the most immature conversation I've ever had to watch. Right. Had to watch. Um, and I was like, oh, this is actually just like very similar to my essay in that I was having these sort of qualms. I was petulant, but I was so scared of being perceived as petulant and sort of just allowing myself the freedom to unclench my jaw and enjoy twee and music that made me happy. That is... I suppose, mature. It's certainly not regressive in any way. And then, you know, it also brings up questions of, is it not serious music? Because it's often about crushes. And it is serious in that it allows me to no longer feel shame about things such as having a crush, which can feel childlike or just soft, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, I even was trying to decide, you know, when we were listening to Super Crush, how I consider, I I still consider it a sweet song, but what does Mm -hmm. sweet really mean? Is Tiger Trap like an umami sweetness where there's depth to it? There's a depth of flavor to it in my mind. Am I drawing a line in the sand? It's still sort of, it's it's a little complicated for me still. I love the question that you're bringing up of like, okay, on the one hand, you can say this thing is girly and cute and sweet and that's bad. Or on the other hand, you can say this thing is girly and cute and sweet and actually that's good. Or there's a third option, which is like, this is a thing that I appreciate about the music that makes it neither empowering or infantilizing. It's a thing that I appreciate about it and can hear in other music, can see in other art. And I feel like that's a place that your essay came to really beautifully. And there's actually a selection in particular where you talk about considering that paradox. Can you read that for us? Listening to Tiger Trap instilled in me new accesses in which to appreciate art. Men performing anger isn't the only avenue to serious music. And what is the value of labeling genres as significant and others insignificant anyway? Punk's abrasion and the balminess of indie pop have their value separately and in all the ways they intersect now and may in the future. Without recognizing the glorious softness of Tiger Trap and indie pop more broadly, it's unlikely I would have opened my ears and heart to the bright tones of black metal, the dreamy glissando of pedal steel, the enduring earnestness of most Disney teen pop performers, hell, the ascendant five-part harmonies of most boy band music. I love so much that you end that there because, of course, you then went on to write a whole book about boy bands, and it was kind of thanks in part to this journey that Tiger Trap sent you on. I'm wondering, Laura, you talked about hearing Tegan and Sarah and the way that that pop music made you kind of question, like, oh, wait a minute, what have I been depriving myself of? I don't know that I thought about it sort of explicitly at the time, but when I reflect, I can really see that path. I mean, just thinking about PJ Harvey, I think realizing that her career was going to zig and zag and not just be sort of a linear ascent gave me permission to not feel like I had to passively love everything she did in the way that I had anticipated to with Ah Ha Ha, which I do genuinely love. But then White Chalk, the album she made afterwards, I don't like it that much. But then the one she made after that, A Woman and Man Walked By with John Parrish is feral and freaky and brilliant. And then I loved that one. I trusted her and I could see her art for what it was as opposed to sort of like a blind loyalty to it. And then I think maybe one of the ways that it sort of um, manifested in my own life was 
I've quit college twice. I did five weeks of one degree and two years of another one. And neither me nor any of my closest friends have sort of like done the linear path that was set out for us. And I think that having figures like PJ Harvey, who plotted a different path, sort of implicitly suggested to me that there was one available. Laura, I, I love that you brought that up because like it's actually one of my favorite lines in your essay, just even the the notion of zigging and zagging in her career and, and how it affected you. Because my essay ends with these adjectives that are kind of at odds with one another. Zigging and zagging is just my appreciation for complex women and artists doing all these different things, which is just like different language to kind of get to the same point of, of this complication. So I admit I had not listened to the Tiger Trap record before I knew we were going to talk about it. And I did really enjoy it when I put it on. But when I looked it up on Spotify, the first thing that spoke to me about it is the artwork is a pencil illustration of a traditional quilting patch. And my mom and my grandma and my nana make quilts. And as a teenager, it's one of those things that I'd always rejected, like, oh, I'm never going to do this. This is so sort of like feminine and soft and ugh. But then I got into it and I particularly remember a really great moment I had where I was like, sewing on the sewing machine and the only music you could listen to that was loud enough to hear over the machine was autoclave and I really enjoyed sort of the duality of those things getting into quilting has been sort of like an agreement to softness uh, which I would not have allowed myself before and so then that for me was the way into the tiger trap album it instantly made me feel well favorable towards it I love that. And quilting, you couldn't name a tweer. (laughs) (laughs) It's right up there with drinking tea, I suppose, and, you know, owning a cat. I think that quilting, drinking tea, and owning a cat is the perfect place to end this. So, Maria and Laura, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you for having us. It's been great. Yeah, thank you so much. This was fun. And thanks to everyone for listening. Tune in next week when we'll have a conversation with writers Francesca Royster and Alex Ramos about music that helps you find your identity and be true to yourself. You can read all the Turning the Tables essays at npr.org slash turning the tables. For NPR Music, I'm Marissa LaRusso. It's all songs considered. Oh, dear sweet.